Hello, I'm Father Charlie Gordon of the Garaventa Center for Catholic Intellectual Life and American Culture at the University of Portland. Welcome to Soloquia Tempestiva. The topic uh, of our podcast is Letters to Malcolm Chiefly on Prayer, uh, a short book by C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis, by acclamation, one of the greatest Christian apologists of the 20th century, famous for books like the Chronicles of Narnia and the Screwtape Letters, really requires very little introduction. And so I won't spend much time telling you who he was. Uh, it's significant for our conversation today that uh, he's, he's not a Catholic. He's not a Roman Catholic. Uh, he's an Anglican. So he's, he's a Protestant, and he's a Protestant from a particularly avid Protestant community. His origins are in Belfast. And so uh, given that, it's a testament to his quality of his mind and his openness to uh, going wherever his reflections led him that he is that he's open to a lot of characteristically catholic ideas he has sympathy for things like devotion to saints to uh, prayer for the dead for purgatory in fact and and for this reason uh, a lot of people believe that had lewis lived longer that he would have converted to catholicism in fact, I had tea some years ago with Lewis's last personal secretary, a fellow who himself converted to Catholicism, and he said that if Lewis had lived a few years longer, he too uh, would have converted. Now, I uh, had to say uh, to this gentleman that uh, I couldn't see it on the page. As I read Lewis, it doesn't look to me as if this is a man uh, who was about to become Catholic. And for me, I think that is rooted in his origins. He's a man for whom traditions are very, very important. And the fact that he's grounded in Belfast and in that particular kind of Protestantism might have made actual conversion to Catholicism kind of a bridge too far for him, I think. So uh, in this book, uh, Letters to Malcolm, Chiefly on Prayer, we will see evidence of this sort of um, an openness to Catholic ideas. But in at least one place, I think we'll find an indication that, uh, that perhaps he uh, still has quite a long uh, way to go, that he's still some ways from, uh, from thinking like a Catholic. Okay? So um, the book, Letters to Malcolm, Chiefly on Prayer, is a posthumous book. It was published after C.S. Lewis's death. And it's a collection of fictional letters. It's a made-up correspondence between um, one figure who's apparently Lewis himself and another figure, uh, Malcolm, who is a kind of lifelong correspondent with the first figure on, uh, on spiritual questions. It's among the least popular of C.S. Lewis's books, but I think it's one of the least popular for a reason that I don't accept. I think it's one of the least popular books because in it, Lewis is not as definitive in what he asserts as he is elsewhere. He doesn't come down firmly on one side of the argument in the way that people associate with his other works. 
Uh, he's still in some places in a kind of a six of one and half a dozen of the other uh, state. But is that is that a bad place to be, really? In fact, to me, and I, this may be in my imagination, but the book has a quality of uh, being a book written by an older man who is trying to give us an account of where he has got so far on big questions that he hasn't entirely resolved to his own satisfaction, maybe in the realization that he may not have time to resolve them, and so he at least wants to put on record what he, what he is, has been able to uh, arrive at so far. So let's start by looking at the rationale for the book. Why is the book written? I think we can find that uh, in the 15th letter. Here's the passage. What is more natural and easier, if you believe in God, than to address him? In other words, why do you need a book about prayer? Isn't it just entirely natural to address God if you believe in God? And he goes on, yes, but it depends who one is. For those in my position, adult converts from the intelligentsia, that simplicity and spontaneity can't always be the starting point. We have to work back to the simplicity the long way round. Um, and this reminds us that C.S. Lewis says of his own conversion that it is one of the most intellectual conversions that he knows about. There's very little place uh, for the emotions in, in his decision to become a Christian. Um, and so for someone who has uh, that kind of way of leaning into faith, it's important to explicitly think through some of the important uh, issues surrounding uh, praying to God. Well, let's kind of uh, cherry-pick the book in the time that we have left and then look, in fact, at some of those Catholic-sounding notions that uh, the Protestant Lewis has, and starting with uh, devotion to the saints. Now, devotions to the saints, praying to saints, is problematic for a lot of non-Catholic Christians who will say you should only pray to God. When they hear pray to saints, it sounds to them like worshiping saints. But in fact, that's a misunderstanding of what the word pray means. For instance, think of the expression pray tell. What pray tell is going on here? It doesn't mean worship. It means to, uh, to ask for something. So the question is really not whether we can worship saints, which of course we can't, but whether we can ask saints for something, if we can ask them to pray for us. And this is what Lewis has to say about it. He says, devotion to saints. There is clearly a theological defense for it. If you can ask for the prayers of the living, why should you not ask for the prayers of the dead? This, end quote, what Lewis is talking about here is the communion of saints. The notion that everybody who has ever been alive in Christ is still alive in Christ because of Christ's victory over death. And therefore, uh, we can ask those who have gone before us in Christ for their prayers, just as we can ask each other for prayers. Next, he says, but on the other hand, 
there's also a great danger. In some popular practice, we see it leading off into an infinitely silly picture of heaven as an earthly court where applicants will be wise to pull the right wires and attach themselves to the most influential pressure groups. Well, I think we have to admit that this is sometimes an element of Catholic practice in regard to saints. Uh, a notion that he doesn't find particularly dignified or helpful. Okay, then he goes on to say, The consoling thing is that while Christendom is divided about the rationality and even the lawfulness of praying to saints, we are all agreed about praying with them, with angels and archangels and all the company of heaven. Will you believe it? It's only quite recently that I made that quotation part of my private prayers. I festoon it around, hallowed be thy name. In other words, Lewis says we are praying with the saints and the angels. And when he, when he prays the Our Father, he prays with the saints and the angels so that his small, imperfect, perhaps unworthy prayer is taken up into theirs as if God needed to be told things, because God already knows everything. Perhaps, Lewis says, the implication is, yeah, God knows everything, but sometimes God needs to be reminded. Sometimes God is less attentive than other times and needs to have his attention brought to something in particular. But Lewis uh, rejects this uh, suggestion uh, as well. He writes, as if though God does not need to be informed, he does need, and even rather frequently, to be reminded. But we cannot really believe in degrees of attention, and therefore of inattention, and therefore of something like forgetfulness. Uh, we can't believe that any of this exists in the divine mind, uh, particularly, as Lewis says, because I presume that only God's attention keeps me or anything else in existence at all. So he's referring here to the classical Christian belief that if God were to forget you for a fraction of a moment, uh, you'd flicker out of existence. If God were to forget the cosmos for even a fraction of a moment, the cosmos would flicker out of existence. So in light of that, it's, 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 it's silly to suggest that God needs to have uh, to have the divine attention brought to a particular situation. So that can't be why we tell God things either. So what does Lewis suggest next? Why do we then tell God things? He says a lot depends on the answer to that question. Our whole approach to what he calls the prayer situation depends on us having some kind of answer to that question of why are we telling God things. And he says, But though this knowledge of God's never varies, the quality of our being known can. He says that there are two kinds of divine knowledge. The first kind of divine knowledge, uh, to be known by God, is in the category of things. Uh, we are like earthworms and cabbages and nebula, objects of divine knowledge. But when we, A, become aware of the fact, the present fact, not the generalization, the present fact that we are known by God, and B, 
when we assent with all our will to being known, then we treat ourselves in relation to God not as things, but as persons. We have unveiled. The change is in us. The passive changes to the active. Instead of merely being known, we show, we tell, we offer ourselves to view. So let's try to unpack that a bit. Imagine someone asks you, do you know Pope Francis? Well, clearly you know there is a Pope Francis. You know of Pope Francis. But to say you know Pope Francis would be to say that in some sense you have a relationship with, with the man. And, and that's the difference in divine knowledge, really, I think. Knowing an object and knowing in terms of uh, a relationship. And I'm reminded of, let's say a child comes home from school and uh, maybe at the dinner table, uh, the, a parent says to the child, what did you do in school today? Uh, now, the parent probably has a pretty good idea what the student did in school that day and, and probably isn't all that fascinated to know the details of what the student did in school that day. The real desire on the parent's part is to have uh, the child open up to, by saying, by telling the parent things, uh, the child is sort of entering into the activity of the relationship with the parent. Um, and that's what's uh, ultimately uh, desirable. Uh, the other day, someone asked me, and I think this is related, you, you be the judge. You know, I've got a lot of friends who don't believe in God. And you know, God's taking care of them. It rains on them just like it rains on everybody else. God has, God loves them. God has a saving plan for them. So what am I doing? What am I doing by being uh, explicitly uh, a Christian? What's that about? And I suggested like, okay, pr presumably you have a favorite band. Uh, let's say for the sake of argument, Coldplay. Now, you can listen to Coldplay's music anytime you want. Everybody, pretty much, can listen to Coldplay's music anytime they want. But you really care about Coldplay. Wouldn't it be wonderful if you actually knew the members of the band? Wouldn't it be great if you had a relationship of friendship with the members of the band. Wouldn't it be amazing if you could be a member of the band and actually play the music, help make the music of the band? And I said, that's um, one perspective on why we are Christian. You can make the analogy yourself. God loves everybody. God has a plan for everybody. But in Christianity, we're, we're, we're offered an opportunity to be a member of the band. It's a trinity. Uh, a trio, I guess you'd say, um, and we can help to make the music. Um, we can enter into relationship. We can go from being like uh, the object of uh, divine knowledge to uh, to assenting to being known and entering into a relationship by unveiling ourselves uh, before God. Next, what's important enough to pray for? Are there some things that are so uh, trivial that it would be uh, rude to bring them to the attention of God. 
And how do we decide uh, what's important enough to pray for? This is uh, what Lewis suggests about that. Two questions are involved. How important must an object be before we can, without sin and folly, allow our desire for it to become a matter of serious concern to us? So notice that's not of concern to God, but concern for us. What do we have a right to be concerned about? Are there things that are too trivial for us to care seriously about? And two, granted the existence of such a serious concern in our minds, can it always properly be laid before God in prayer? For example, I'm a member of the Congregation of Holy Cross and have spent a good deal of my, my adult life at the University of Notre Dame. And the University of Notre Dame, uh, you may have heard, has a football team. And, uh, and years ago, during the football games, the uh, older sisters, the retired sisters over at St. Mary's across the road, would all come together in their community room to watch the game together. And while the game was on, they would all pray the rosary uh, together uh, that Notre Dame would win. And by the way, in those days, Notre Dame almost always did win. I'm just saying. So, um, how do you feel about that? Is that uh, worth worthy of God's attention? Does God care whether Notre Dame wins a football game? Someone asked the great Notre Dame football coach, Lou Holtz, whether God cared or whether Jesus cared whether Notre Dame won a football game or not. And Lou Holtz famously answered, I'm not sure if Jesus does care, but I know his mother does. But anyway, back to Lewis. What does Lewis say about this question of, are some things too trivial to be reverently brought before God in prayer? And what he suggests is that it's no use to ask God with facetious earnestness for A, when our whole mind is really filled with a desire for B. We must lay before him what is in us, not what ought to be in us. So we might as well be honest about what we care passionately about. That, after all, is what we ask even of friends. As Lewis writes, even an intimate human friend is ill-used if we talk to him about one thing while our mind is really on another. So we should be transparent and honest before God and just share um, what we are most concerned about at that moment. Now, Lewis says it may well be that the desire can be laid before God only as a sin to be repented, but one of the best ways of learning this is to lay it before God. So he's saying it's, it's often precisely by making a prayer to God that we realize that, well, actually, probably that wasn't worthy of, of being brought before God in prayer. As Lewis says, if we lay all the cards on the table, God will help us to moderate the excesses. And then he finally he says, um, no noise is so emphatic as the one you are trying not to listen to. And then the last thing he says on the subject is this. He says, you know, sometimes I fancy uh, we may be deterred from small prayers by a sense of our own dignity rather than God's. So something to think about. Now, I said earlier that we would return to this notion of festooning the Lord's Prayer. Uh, and he does turn to that subject in the fifth letter. By festooning, he means that when we are repeating a prayer that we have prayed many, many times before, like the Our Father, he 
clothes each uh, passage of the prayer, each phrase of the prayer, with associated ideas that deepen and enrich his experience of that phrase of the prayer. And we've already seen that with hallowed be thy name, that for him, hallowed be thy name means I link my, my weak, my flawed, my tiny prayer with that of all of the great angels and saints so that God's name is hallowed to a greater extent than it would be by my tiny prayer. Let's look at a couple other of these festoons that he does in the Lord's Prayer. Thy kingdom come. What does he do with that bit? Well, that is, he says, may your reign be realized here as it is realized there. Thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven, right? May it be here as it is there. Well, his festooning is about what do I mean by here and what do I mean by there? And he says, I mean three things. He says, first, as in the sinless world beyond the horrors of animal and human life, in the behavior of stars and trees and water and sunrise and wind, may there be here in my heart the beginning of a like beauty. So he's suggesting, may uh, my heart uh, which is currently characterized by, um, you know, sinfulness and anxiety and confusion, may it somehow be characterized more by the kind of austere clarity and, and profound purity and beauty of the stars. So for him, that's one. You may or may not find that attractive, but that's, that, that, that helps him spiritually. Second, as in the best human lives I have known, in all the people who really bear the burdens and ring true, and in the quiet, busy, ordered life of really good families and really good religious houses, may that too be here in my heart. Now, may that expression of the kingdom be in my heart. And finally, of course, in the usual sense, as in heaven, as among the blessed dead. Okay, so, thy will be done. What about that one? Well, he says, at first, I took it exclusively as an act of submission, attempting to do with it what our Lord did in Gethsemane. And that, of course, is where we most often go with that prayer. Our Lord saying, um, may this cup be taken away from me, but thy will, not mine, be done. But, he says, a great deal of God's will is to be done by God's creatures. So he festoons that phrase with the additional idea that I may vigorously do it, that I must be an agent who is actively doing the will of God rather than just a patient who is, uh, is, past, is, is patiently enduring uh, the suffering that may be part of the will of God. And what more can we say? Here's a, here's a, a really interesting aspect of that. He suggests, Lewis suggests, that when I say, thy will be done, he prays about this in light of possible future blessings as well as possible future afflictions. May I be open to your will for me as it's manifested in possible future blessings as well. And that's counterintuitive at first, so let's see what he means about that. He means, he says, 
It seems to me that we often almost sulkily reject the good that God offers us because at that moment we expect some other good. Do you know what I mean? On every level of our life, we are always harking back to some occasion which seemed to us to reach perfection, setting that up as the norm and depreciating all other occasions by comparison. Um, and that makes me think immediately of when I was, I think, four or five years old, and I wanted something badly, and I wasn't allowed to have it, and I was furious. I was angry. I was seething. And, uh, and my uncle, my father's brother, said to me, Hey, what do you say we go out and get an ice cream cone? And I was so angry, I said, No, I don't want an ice cream cone. And about one second later, I thought, what have I just said? And I said immediately, oh, actually, I would like an ice cream cone. And my uncle said, too late. So could we not be like that, Lewis suggests, with some of the blessings that God intends for us right now? Some of the extraordinarily beautiful things that God has in store for us right now? We are sulkily uh, being impervious to them or oblivious to them because we have uh, set some impossible standard based upon some previous good that God has given us that we want again. Uh, Lewis says that if there's one kind of prayer that God doesn't answer, it's probably the prayer encore, that, uh, that God seems not likely to give us again what we have had before. But the joke and the tragedy of this, says Lewis, is that all of these golden moments in the past, which are so tormenting if we erect them into a norm, are entirely nourishing, wholesome, and enchanting if we are content to accept them for what they are, for memories. I promised you in the beginning that I would look at uh, one point in the book where uh, there's evidence that Lewis's mind uh, wasn't, he wasn't really thinking like a Catholic uh, in some aspects of, uh, of, of his way of leaning in to faith. And I think we can see this in what he has to say about the Eucharist. Now, in his discussion of the Eucharist, he's responding to the criticism that he has never said anything definitive on the subject. And he says, this doesn't mean that the Eucharist isn't important to me. What it means is that I've never been happy with any description of what the Eucharist is. And he goes on to briefly describe what we recognize as the Catholic understanding of transubstantiation. He says, And I find substance in Aristotle's sense, when stripped of its own accidents and endowed with the accidents of some other substance, an object I cannot think. So in other words, the classic Catholic notion of transubstantiation just doesn't signify uh, for him. And he says, on the other hand, I get on no better with those who tell me that the elements are mere bread and wine used symbolically to remind me of the death of Christ. And then he goes on to say, I'm not saying to anyone in the world, your explanation is wrong. I am saying your explanation leaves the mystery for me still a mystery. And the Catholic hearing that would respond, and that's a bad thing? You see, I think Lewis here is still using an, a sort of an un-Catholic understanding of the word mystery. 
a notion that a mystery is something that we don't yet know and that we won't be happy until we can fully explain. Whereas the Catholic notion of mystery is of something that we happily accept and affirm can never be completely understood or explained and which we treasure nonetheless for that. So when Lewis says, I'm saying your explanation leaves the mystery for me still a mystery, he's, he, he does sound like he's uh, saying that, that, that that's a bad thing. And uh, that's not a Catholic way of thinking. There's a lot more that we could talk about. Um, prayer for the dead and purgatory. Uh, the irksomeness of prayer. Um, why is it that we find it so hard to pray? Uh, Lewis has uh, important things to say on these and many other subjects, but we're out of time. And so I will leave that to you in your own uh, explorations of letters to Malcolm, chiefly on prayer. <laughs>